to me, when things get tougher from, you know, a macroeconomic perspective and you get into this idea of recessions or whatever else, that's when true innovation comes out. That's Scarlett Sieber talking, Chief Strategy Officer of Money 2020, my guest on this episode of Lives of Tomorrow. We've seen this time and time again. So in the U.S., when we had the financial crisis in 08, some of our biggest tech companies were born out of that. Because, again, going back to like the psychology of humans, when things are not good or when things are really good, usually when things are not good, that is when people are a bit more reflective. This is just one of the exciting things Scarlett talks about during this episode, but we'll get back to that later. I'm Carla Bizarchi, and I'm the CEO of WGSN, the world's leading consumer insight and trend forecasting company. And I'm really proud to have this conversation with Scarlett. We'll be talking about fintech, consumer behaviors towards money, and finding out what the future is for cash all in this episode. And we'll even have an exchange of ideas about our mutual love of Peloton. You're listening to Lives of Tomorrow. In this podcast, we focus on what our lives will look like in the future. The future that waits for us just around the corner, our lives of tomorrow. And how all the trends and forecasts that we do at WGSN will shape the way that we, you and me, live our lives. And although I already kind of introduced Scarlett, why not let her make a better introduction herself? First of all, thank you so much, Carla, for having me here. What a fun podcast topic talking about the future and trends. So I'm Scarlett Sieber. I am the Chief Strategy and Growth Officer at Money 2020, and I come from the space. I was a a banker. I was a CIO of a bank. I've always been on the digital side of things, and I actually wrote a book on embedded finance, which is about really making money part of your everyday life in a really seamless way. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the things that I researched and wrote about through some of the the conversation today. Amazing. So we're going to start on the personal before we get into all the detail and, and your thoughts on the industry that you know so well. And I wanted to ask you, what was a pivotal moment or possibly a person in your career that you think has had the most impact on getting you to where you are now? Love the question. I have had so many pivotal moments, but if I were to limit it to one, I would say to my CEO and co-founder of my startup called Infamous, and his name is uh, Paolo Gadiano. When I joined the startup, it was shortly after college, I fell in love with and I was passionate about the vision and the opportunity for the startup. And I started off as an office admin, but because it was such a small company, I was the one that was grabbing lunch orders and refilling waters, but then also sitting in in key strategy meetings because we were only 15 people. And very quickly, I think Paolo saw the potential and opportunity. And so the most traction was in media. He was one of the first to see the real potential and continuously pushed me out of my comfort zone in ways that quite frankly, made me quite uncomfortable at the time. He'd have me, we'd go to pitch events and I'd be the one that'd be pitching the company. And it really just made me grow so much as a person. And by the the end of my duration with Infamous, I was co-founder, had co-founder equity and was chief operating officer. So probably the most impactful moment in terms of my career trajectory. I love that story. Now, there's another question that we're going to come back to later on in the podcast, which I've asked lots of the other guests, but actually got from one of the guests. It was their suggestion for us. But I don't want you to answer it right now. Just let your mind meander over it while we're talking. And that question is, 
when was the last time you learned something new? So preferably something that had an impact in the way that you live your life or maybe see the world. So just have a think about it and we'll come back to it towards the end of the show. Love it. Now, Scarlett, as you said, you've worked in the financial sector for a long time. You've seen what's happened. You've seen which predictions were right, which predictions were wrong. And obviously, the business that you work on is predicting the future of money. And I really want to use our conversation to think about what money will look like in the future on a global scale. So do you think that cash will ever become globally obsolete? One of the things that's so interesting about the sector of financial services is in one way, the world changes dramatically year on year. And in another way, we're having a same conversation 10 years later that we did 10 years ago, and the the fundamentals are still the same. So this cash conversation is not a new one, and we're still having it. And there were conversations this year in Vegas, this year in Amsterdam at our two shows around cash as well. So forever, you know, is a long time. I do suspect that we will have cash for the foreseeable future. It's ubiquitous. It's trusted. It's available to all. You talked about the demographic piece, which is very true. But the other part is, especially in the new wave of everything that's going on, it's anonymous. So people like the tactile nature of cash. You can see it. You can hold it. And that is a really crucial piece compared to the digital money, which is ethereal, right? So This rings true for a variety of people, but those who tend to be from the lower socioeconomic demographics tend to really value cash because it's, like I said, it's tangible. They can hold it. They can see it. So if they have a paycheck, they have the money in front of them, they go to a check cashing center, which are still ubiquitous, especially in countries like the United States. They have that money. They still put it under their mattress or whatever else. They see exactly how much they spend. And that's a really important thing for them. And actually, we've seen over the last few years different states within the United States, cash consumption has actually gone up, which is kind of crazy even post-COVID. So do I think it will ever become globally obsolete? Maybe, but we're a long way from that. I think that's amazing that it's gone up in the States. I mean, I struggle to think, genuinely struggle to think the last time I used cash. And I wasn't, you know, I I, I was going to say an early adopter. I work in trend forecasting. I should be, but I'm very comfortable paying with my phone, paying with my watch to do things. And obviously during the pandemic, so many places stopped even accepting cash here. So it just becomes a really natural thing. So it's amazing even in the US, such a developed country that that's the case. I was interested in some of the thoughts about innovation and your predictions around this. So if we look back, not that long ago, the thought of paying for something with your watch would have you know, blown your mind. How do you think we will be paying for things? So forget about cash. What's going to be the most innovative way that we will pay for things in the next five to 10 years? Such a good question. There's so many ways. I don't think it will be one or the other. I think it's it's less of what it is that is the transaction. It's more about how it feels for the end consumer. So the last chapter of the book that uh, myself and one of my girlfriends wrote um, is all about the consumer in 2030. And it just talks about how financial services just like so naturally integrates into your life. So I'll give you one example that there is an output of a transaction. So that could be going to the gas station and your car automatically paying. You never have to get anything out for that. Or that your balances get redistributed based off of what was best for you. Because I think for me, when I think about money and how technology can advance and enhance that, it's making people feel 
financially secure, whether they have $10 or $10 million, it's how to make that money work for them. So think about, I don't know how many cards you have, Carla, but I have five, six credit cards. I travel a lot for work. American is my airlines, you know, one world bigger one. So I use that for all my purchases to build up my miles. But there, I also have a Macy's card. I also have other cards. And so there are times when I should be using each one of those cards to benefit me because naturally these credit card providers have partnerships with different people. So if you use this card to get gas, you get five time points or whatever. Anyways, no human has the time, energy, or quite frankly, like intellectual capacity to be doing all of that level of like optimization. So to me, it's about optimizing that process and allowing the computers or technology to do what it's really good at, which is making sure that you're using the right card at the right place at the right time, and then allowing humans to come and intervene when it's big decisions. Here's the data that says that it's a good time to refinance. Or I've been talking with my husband and we need to get a new house. We just bought a new house, so that's a bad example. But pretend that it was two years ago and we're starting to talk about getting a new house. That is a decision that we have to make that we feel like we need to upgrade our lives or whatever else. But the technology looking at our finances can say, here's the best time. If you wait six more months, here's what we're predicting from an interest rate perspective. Here's what we're predicting from a market a market perspective and houses are going to go down, we think by 15% or whatever else. So for me, it's much more about how you interact with money versus like what thing you use to make a payment. But yeah, I mean, cars, anything you name it, obviously, and anything, any wearable, all those things can do it where you're not even thinking about it. And of course, you have the examples already live today with the Amazon fresh stores. And there's a million of other examples. I think Tesco's already done this over in the UK, where you can go into a store, buy things and never take out anything and never pay. I mean, clearly you pay, but they don't, it's not in any hardware that you're paying for something. Okay, I really want to come to more of the innovation. But before that, I've got some reoccurring questions. I ask these to every single guest and I want immediate quick fire answers. So don't think too much about it. Okay, why do you work? I love what I do. Do you have a sense of purpose in your work? Every single day wakes up. It's a new challenge. Do you have a sense of purpose in your life? Yes, to make the world a better place than when I got here. When are you the most creative? Mm, Between two and four. (laughs) And why are you most creative between two and four? I don't know. That's just kind of seemed to be my secret time. In the morning, Maybe it's just in response to the time frame of the calendars because half my team is in Europe, so I don't get time to be creative in the morning. And so the afternoon is when it gets a little bit more quiet. And also maybe it's the that I've had, you know, a handful of meetings by that point. So I can sit there and reflect and then start thinking about how to implement what just came out of, of those conversations. Confession, I'm trying to think what I was doing between two and four today and had a really long meeting and I've done something to my back. So I was standing up with a hot water bottle strapped around my waist like a little snail for two hours. I was definitely not being my most creative. I was basically trying to stay upright while I was answering lots of questions from an important company. Anyway, I'm not saying two to four is my is my optimum time and it certainly wasn't today. What is yours? I think mine would be when I'm exercising, which is always first thing in the morning. I can't exercise later in the day. It's got to be done first thing in the morning. So either running or gym or I'm quite into Peloton at the moment, although clearly with a bad back and a hot water bottle strapped to me, there's going to be very little exercise this week, sadly. Okay, Carla, you got to tell me who's your instructor on Peloton. Well, I was a Robin fan. 
but I also love Emma Lovewell. I think Robin, Robin's maybe a little bit hardcore. I, I'm slightly terrified that's why I've done my back in. So I think I'm, I'm going back to Emma when I'm back on the bike. <laughs> Robin has a new uh, like figurine out. Robin and Alex Toussaint are my two goes to. I've although I have now been using Tune Day, which I thought she was the hardcore one, but I've I like tripped on her a few times and I've had Peloton for four plus years, but I've never been like consistently active. But I tried again leading up to the Vegas show. Of course, you gotta be stage ready. And uh all of my PRs, meaning over the course of four years when I was in much better shape, I was beating them with Tune Day just recently. So wow. she's my new she's my new girl. Okay, I'm adding her to my stack. Sorry, this was a bit of a detour on the Peloton bikes. Now, let's get back to those reoccurring questions. I asked Scarlett, what makes her happy? Working with people who challenge the way that I think and my family. When are you offline? Unfortunately, not very often. Because even when I'm offline, my brain is thinking about online things. Okay. And when was the last time that you felt you were wasting your time and you only had yourself to blame for it? Plenty of times in previous roles. Right title, right money, right everything, but I wasn't having an impact. And I chose to follow the the limelight versus what was best for me. Thanks to Scarlett for some really interesting answers. Now let's get back to the topic of the future of money. Scarlett had mentioned the take-up of Apple Pay during COVID. And I wanted to know if there were any other big accelerations that she saw during that time. Let me take a step back. When I think about this, it goes back to kind of what I was saying to you earlier, which is really about people's behaviors. So people don't particularly like change or they don't like to they don't like to be changed. So one of the things that happened with COVID was almost a forced change because they were a little bit reluctant. Oh, you know, I've heard about this paying with my phone thing. I try. It feels a little bit weird. I feel a little bit awkward at the terminal because I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to do. So I'm probably just not going to do it. Then all of a sudden you start seeing, you know, everyone being germophobic and afraid to interact and exchange anything with anyone. So therefore, that little thing that was a bit uncomfortable for you all of a sudden feels like like you're willing to take that uncomfortability to make sure you get it. So for me, it was about the change in people's mindsets. And then also, I would say, you know, you were asking earlier about the the demographics from a generational perspective. One of the most interesting things in my mind from a financial services perspective as a result of COVID is the older generations getting comfortable with digital technology. And again, it came back to like force. So the other parts of payments is on like the peer-to-peer payments. I, this is a very true story. So my mother-in-law, so she's 70 now, so high 60s when COVID hit started utilizing Venmo because she was doing this like virtual because she couldn't go in person with her like choir thing. So they did some like virtual stuff and they she had to exchange money with a friend of hers. I forget her name, but let's just call her Karen for the purpose of this. So to do this, she's supposed to send Karen $50 on Venmo. She goes on Venmo. She sends Karen $50. Karen says she doesn't get it. She sent it to her again. So the third time she asked me, first of all, I did help her set up her Venmo account. So the third time she asks me, 
hey, she's like, Karen said I haven't, you know, I haven't been, uh, she hasn't got the money. So I went and look, well, here's the thing, right? And I forget the name, but it was something like Karen, like a very common name. Of course, it was Karen 1345, like something like that. So she was sending it to the wrong one. And by the way, that's, this is one of the things that's interesting on fintech is a lot of them had to adjust that because they didn't have the very, at that time when COVID hit, like Venmo didn't have the verification process of, are you sure this is who you want to send to? Put their last four digits of their phone number to confirm that. That didn't exist at the time. That was in response to people like my mother-in-law going through this process. So anyways, I went and looked and the Karen, the first Karen, the one that she had sent that $50 to more than once. So I even pinged her and I was like, hey, obviously I didn't mean to send you this money. I was trying for a different Karen. Would please, can you send it back? The lady never sent it back. But I think there is that, that was a big shift is the older generations moving to digital but basically by force. And they couldn't go especially in the United States, we have a lot more financial institutions. Like we have over 10,000 between banks and credit unions in the US, about 5,000 banks, 5,000 credit unions. And a lot of them are communities. They're very small where the secret sauce for some of these small institutions is that direct relationship with the end consumer. So people would be, I kid you not, going into their banks every day, every week, whatever it is, cashing their check, having the conversation. And because of COVID, that stopped. And all of a sudden, they had to adapt to digital banking. So on the one side, for those institutions that weren't like tech first, or at least like tech minded, they were in a really hard position because now they're on their back foot trying to force these digital things for their customers. And for customers, they're now being forced to have to go into go into that environment. So I would say the peer-to-peer payments was a really interesting part outside of the basic one that you were talking about with the Apple Pay or QR codes or whatnot. And then I think the other one was lending, like alt lending and the idea of like really buy now, pay later. Like the idea of being able to pay for things in segments started becoming really popular over that same period of time. I also wanted to hear from my guest, Scarlett Sieber, Chief Strategy Officer for Money 2020 about how our behaviours are impacted by the fluctuating states of economies. So I was really intrigued as to her response to my question. Do you think there are certain things that will accelerate as a consequence of the recession impacting so many countries? To me, when things get tougher from you know a macroeconomic perspective and you get into this idea of recessions or whatever else, that's when true innovation comes out. We've seen this time and time again. So in the U.S., when we had the financial crisis in 08, some of our biggest tech companies were born out of that. Because, again, going back to like the psychology of humans, when things are not good or when things are really good, usually when things are not good, that is when people are a bit more reflective and they're maybe stressed about money, they're stressed about job security, they're stressed about their health, they're stressed about whatever. They sit back, they spend time, they they, they reflect on maybe all the things they could be or all the things they want to do. And that's when a lot of the innovation happens. There's layoffs. Sometimes people are again, uh, forced to be in that position because they no longer have a job. So should I go get the same job that I had? Should I go try this entrepreneurship thing? Like there's a few ways, either by force or by choice. When things get harder is when I, not like in some like weird way, but I do get excited about that time because that's when really cool stuff can happen. And that's when we've seen some of the most innovative things come out of it. And the other part that's interesting about that is the type of companies that are born around that are solving real pain points and real problems. Because one of my frustrations, and this is fintech related, but I think you could apply this across sectors or industries, is that 
some of the stuff is just cool, but it's not really changing people's lives. So when you're in a situation where you're getting into a harder macroeconomic time and you're getting towards recession, then the solutions that you need to find and think about are the ones that are going to genuinely like change people's lives for the better. So that gets me excited, I guess. I can't have a money expert on this podcast and not talk to you about crypto. It's not that it hasn't been front page news for years now. There's always, you know, someone popping up with an opinion on it, but you know, you can't escape it at the moment with what's been happening. Give me your take on this situation. Is crypto over? <laughs> I mean, trust in it is, I can't necessarily say at an all-time low, but it's not particularly high at the moment. What's your take on this entire world? It's an area that I spend a lot of energy on and sleepless nights on. So to your first question, is crypto over? Absolutely not. I think for me, the idea behind crypto is revolutionary. And if and when it is used in the way that I think it was intended to, it's going to fundamentally change people's lives and help people who have had some more challenging financial situations get in the mix. Like with anything else, there's a lot of bad players, right? So if you think about traditional financial players, there's a lot of fraud, funding of terrorists, whatever else that happened. But we don't say, oh, because this one bank got involved in this, then banking is screwed. Like there are always going to be bad players, regardless of whatever the thing that you're looking at. For me, though, it's it's more about the underlying technology and blockchain and the ability to actually see a transaction from beginning to end and hopefully starting to bring more transparency to this world and alleviate some of the challenges that we've had in the past. I think there are so many really exciting examples and use cases of this working. Gig economy is obviously a big thing. I'm sure you all have spent a lot of time looking at over over the, the course of the last 10 plus years. It's like the idea of what blockchain can do for creators and really owning the IP in a way and having this ledger that actually shows you that you own this from beginning to end is really powerful. So it's a hard thing. Do I think that we have a long way to go for crypto? Yes. But am I pro the technology? Yes. And uh, hopefully we have more. A lot of it has to do with lack of awareness and education. And even myself, I've tried to spend a lot of time getting uh, accustomed and, uh, and comfortable with these topics. And it does feel a little bit like a cool a cool guys club that either you're in or you're out. And like the language that's used, there's a bunch of terminology. When you first walk in, you feel like you're really, you know, out of it. And if you don't have the, the eyes, you know, diamond shining on Twitter, then you're not one of the cool people. So I think there's a lot of cultural stuff that needs to shift before this becomes like more actionable in a way that is mainstream. But we're getting there. And it is interesting to see, too, even at Money 2020 over the years, uh, the number of women and people who would you face value, you wouldn't expect to be like into crypto or experts in crypto getting more and more excited about it. So I definitely am a believer in the the potential in the future. But uh, am I disappointed in what we have going on right now? Of course. And like I said, though, these these bad actors are going to be in anything. So crypto is just the, the one that's, you know, front and center right now. But by no means does that mean that there is not still a ton of potential for the future. I think the what's kind of sad within this is that people who were nervous about it or scared about it, scared maybe because of that lack of knowledge and it felt like something that was out of reach and it felt very complicated and what you read now is all negative. 
And therefore, again, I think you're, it's been set back as a consequence. But like you, I mean, the underlying technology, the concept of blockchain and what that can do for well, so many industries, I think is is amazing. But I do think that education piece and you know, education is a kind of boring word in this, but making people feel like this is something that's going to give them more control rather than less control, that's where we will shift and maybe see the take-up increase again. But, you know, it's not inherent in the big financial institutions, the big money markets for this to work, right? So they're rubbing their hands with glee at the moment. Yeah, and I think I think part of it too is, like you said, education is probably the boring part, but the most important part in the sense of it's like anything else. There's plenty of other, uh, not that I'm saying that crypto is this, but there's plenty of other alternative assets that people could start investing in. Some of these robo-advisors have, you know, invest in a soccer team, invest in a farm, whatever else. But I think it's like with anything else, especially if it's something that you're uncomfortable with or you don't have like a, a deep knowledge in yet, it's not some, even if you're, t- oh yeah, give us your money and we're going to change your life. Like, I think it's about testing and learning. So you would you would only ever, as you're getting started and getting comfortable, you're only investing, for lack of a better word, what you're not worried about not getting back. It's just like going to, a, it's not just like, but for the psychological comfort, it's like going to a casino. I'm putting this money in, hoping I make more, but there's a chance I'll walk out with nothing. And I think if that's like the shift of mindset of, hey, for for this to be successful for me, I need to get really comfortable with the in and outs and all the different gas fees and what that, like there's so much that comes with that, but you can start small. And I think that's part of it is you see the messages. And again, there are bad players who sit here and say, this is going to change your life and you become a millionaire. And then people go and because they don't know better, go and invest money that they really shouldn't be investing in anything like that, that that's that's their long-term safety plan. So it's, it's definitely a, it's definitely a tricky one. We've started very small in this family. My husband's got a small amount of Bitcoin, but myself and three stepsons, we invested a, a few tens of pounds in Dogecoin because they're very into dogs and we don't have a real dog. So that's us dipping our toe in, which has caused quite a lot of hilarity. And then I read something about the fact that you could only buy Elon Musk's fragrance using Dogecoin. I don't know whether that was actually true or not, but that's our extent so far. But <laughs> we're starting them young in this household. <laughs> That's great. There's another one, Joe Rogan. I, I forget his dog's name now, but they have a currency for his dog as well. So <laughs> something about the, the, the pet friendly ones on here. On the Lives of Tomorrow podcast, our aim is to educate and entertain. We want to feed your curiosities, whatever they may be. So together, the plan is to keep learning and exchanging ideas. So with this in mind, I like to ask each of my guests this question. When did you last learn something new that has an impact on the way you live your life? Since you've asked that, that's been on the back of my mind. This is going to probably be a cheesy answer, but it's the first one that comes to my mind because you're thinking about impact. Since becoming a mom, I have a two and a half year old. I learned something new all the time from my son. And how has it had an impact on my life? I'm a very ambitious, competitive, used to winning type of personality. And my son humbles and challenges me on those things every day. <laughs> so as soon as I think that I figured something out, his bedtime routine, his eat, whatever it is, he's like, haha, curveball mom, that's not what I'm into anymore. Sorry, that's not how we're doing it. And I'm so used to being able to be a problem solver and figure things out and like make things happen. And with him, it's just not like that. So I've, I've just become much more comfortable with the idea of like, 
there is no right path. Like before I, you know, I was pregnant when I had an idea of what my child would be like, I was going to follow this routine and do this and not do this. And then he was here and it was like, eh, none of that really matters anymore as long as he's happy and healthy. And so for me, it's, he has taught me to be present in the moment because as you asked some of those earlier questions, I genuinely love my job. I'm obsessed with it to the point that work-life balance isn't always great. So when I'm with him, I turn my phone away, off. I have two phones intentionally. I put my work phone separate. So when I'm with him, my time is intentional. And then also he's taught me to be patient and I'm still not fully patient. I'm terrible at patience, but has taught me to be more patient through things and to understand like not everything has to be what you expect it to be. And it's been a it's been a really fun and humbling journey so far. I don't think that was a cheesy answer at all. I think that was really <laughs> sort of heartfelt, quite thought provoking as well. So look, Scarlett, thank you so much. I do find this topic endlessly fascinating because everyone in the world informs so much. We utilize money in whatever format every single day. The technology behind it and how it's evolving is really fascinating and tends to move other industries as well. So thank you so much for your insight. It's been a really great session and thank you for joining the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Carla. And as you said, like for me, there's kind of two subjects that are somewhat taboo, like health and wealth. And both, you know, money is a huge part of that. And having open dialogues and conversations around it is really step one in normalizing some of this stuff. And I personally want to see more and more women in the space. And I think I would just encourage anyone who's listening. There are so many ways to get into this that are not the traditional path. I mean, you don't have to be super, you don't have to be an accountant and be excited about banking to want to be in fintech. And it's really about changing people's lives for the better. So super excited about where we're going from here. And that's it for now. Thank you so much to Scarlett Sieber, Chief Strategy Officer of Money 2020, for talking about our lives of tomorrow with me. Do let me know what you think about this podcast and the direction that you want it to be going in. You could write to me on lives at wgsn.com to give me your input. And do stay tuned for a new episode, which will be out shortly, about how we live our lives of tomorrow. I'm Carla Bazashi, CEO of WGSN, and I'll see you next time.